Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 3, where we are going to be considering together verses 20 through 30. That is Mark chapter 3, 20 through 30, and you can find that passage on page 983 in your pew Bibles. Well, as I am sure you are all aware, it has been quite some time since we look together at this wonderful gospel account of Mark. And I would add to that, I would say it's been too long. And Lord willing, it's my hope to stay here now for quite some time. And Because it's been such a long time, I would like you to please allow me to just briefly give you a sort of cliff notes, or I guess for those of you who are younger this morning, a, a sparks notes of what we have considered so far in the gospel according to Mark. This is a very brief, very condensed introduction into the first three chapters. One of the things that I certainly hope that we all remember about Mark's gospel account is that in it, as we have been making our way together through it, Mark is desperate to get us to Jesus Christ. We see that from the very beginning of this gospel account to the very end of it. That is Mark's mission, to get before you the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark wants us to have a picture or a portrait of the revealed Christ. And he's doing it towards a very definitive end. He's doing it, beloved, because he wants very much to show us not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but his life-giving gospel. We saw that again and again back in the first chapter of this book. And I'm not going to rehash all of that this morning. I trust that you'll go back and you'll look at it again in your own personal time in the Word of God in the week to come. But Mark continually brought us back to that truth as he spoke to us about some of those events that made up that early portion of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you remember, he wastes no time. He gets right to it. He gets to things like his baptism by John, his temptation in the wilderness by Satan, and the calling of his disciples. The more Jesus was revealed to men, the more questions regarding him and his unusual authority, his obvious otherworldly power were raised by the people who surrounded him. That revelation, you will remember, truly left no one unaffected. As Jesus healed the sick, as he cast out demons who had previously remained unchallenged by the religious leaders of that day, as he displayed his, his very power over creation itself, people did one of two things. They either flocked to him in droves, where they fell at his feet and they worshipped him, desperately hoping to get even just somewhat near him, near enough to get relief from their suffering, whatever suffering they were dealing with, or quite simply stated, they hated him. Those, Those were the two responses. That was it. There really was no middle ground. There was no neutral ground when dealing with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Mark makes that very clear in this account. 
the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ either drove you nearer to him or it drove you even further away. And as that division began to settle in on all of these people surrounding Jesus, we began to witness what those two groups look like in a little bit more detail. Beloved, we have to notice the irony going on in the revealing of those two groups in this book. Those who were very clearly running into the arms of Jesus, those who most saw their own desperate need of Him, those who threw themselves at His feet in search of mercy, were not the religious of the day. It was not the religious leaders. It was not the good people of the synagogue. Even the disciples that Jesus called would have never been even close to making the final round of candidates in most pastoral search committees. They were earthy men. Some of them were men of ill repute. Some were despised by religious and earthly alike. And the religious leaders, there's more irony there. Those who were in possession of the word of God and the promise of God and the covenant. Those guardians of history and ancestry. Those bastions of personal piety and holiness. Those who took pride in being the declared people of God. They, of course, were not running to him for the same purpose or even running to him at all. They were not at all interested in finding mercy or healing from the hands of this troublesome Nazarene. They too ran to him, but it was only in hopes of discrediting what they called an imposter, catching and punishing a charlatan, a huckster, a phony. And as they began to sort of circle their collective wagons in order to to wage war against Jesus Christ and his gospel, Mark brings something else very significant to the surface. He points to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and the fact that Almighty God will not stand for hypocrisy when it comes to faith. Beloved, that led us into that second chapter, and you probably remember those contrasts that Mark was bringing up in the narrative in chapters 2 and 3. We spent quite a bit of time looking at them already. There was, of course, the paralytic. Remember that memorable scene? He's lowered through a hole that they ripped in the roof into the presence of Jesus, and The Pharisees are there and they become outraged. They become downright offended because Jesus dared to pronounce the forgiveness of this pathetic man's sins. You remember what they said? Again, it's more of Mark's irony. (laughs) They said, who can forgive sin but God himself? How dare Jesus do that? Who can forgive sin but God indeed? There's a contrast. One places himself in the hands of God because of his revelation, while another refuses to see the irony in his outrage that the one who clearly was exercising dominion over sickness, demons, and death would dare to be so bold as to make claims to his own deity. 
Jesus is doing what God is rightly expected to do. And for the religious leaders of that day, it was enough to condemn him. Then Jesus calls his disciples. And again, we have a contrast. Jesus celebrates and gathers with the outcasts. He eats and he drinks with sinners. And the scribes and the Pharisees see it. And in more irony, they're again outraged. And what do they say? This one is a friend to sinners. A friend to sinners indeed. A contrast. Indeed, instead of following the vain and the empty traditions of men, Jesus comes to actually heal the broken ones. The desperate ones. The only ones who can actually see him. It was manifested again for us in the accusation against the disciples and the the followers of Jesus who were found to not be fasting. When everyone else was fasting. Perhaps even more outrageous to these men bringing this, this charge. They were not making their fasting known to everyone around them. These leaders had taken what was given to them as a tool for humbling themselves before God, for manifesting their own desperate need and dependence upon God. And they had turned it into yet another wicked tool for the glory of man. They had taken what was centered on true religious intent and the right worship of God, and they had made it into yet another introduction into their own vain glory. And it was hypocrisy. And it still is hypocrisy. They were pretending to be something that they were not. They were play actors. And Jesus would have none of it. Because hypocrisy, beloved, has no place in the kingdom of God. And I don't want to sidetrack us too much this morning, beloved, but I do want us to think about this. This is a major point in Mark's gospel. This picture of the absolute folly of being content with hypocrisy and calling it authentic biblical faith builds up to an eventual boiling point in this narrative. The Pharisees and the scribes go from being men who were stumbling upon the public ministry of Jesus here and there, to actively seeking him out so that they could charge him with something big enough to rid the world of him. From here, Mark goes on to give two more separate charges of Sabbath breaking against first the disciples who were plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and then against Jesus himself for daring to heal, to restore, to bring life to somebody on the Sabbath. And I want you to understand, this is important stuff. And it is central to Mark getting you to the real Jesus. And so I have to ask, I must ask. You need to take stock of your life. You need to stand back and ask yourself, have you settled for hypocrisy in the place of true faith? Is it something other than your own desperate need for cleansing and healing and dependence upon Jesus Christ and his gospel that drives you in the Christian life? 
Do your own traditions mean more to you than the people that Almighty God has called you to a like faith with? That's a difficult question. And I absolutely am aware that I'm meddling here, right? But so is Mark. There is one path to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, are we content with anything else? And by anything else, I mean something that is really quite less than what we have been given in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Are you content this morning with a Christianity that has all the appearance of godliness with absolutely none of its power? None of the gospel, none of the fruit of the Spirit, none of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control that we ought to expect. Just more rules, more traditions, more unqualified expectations of everyone else. Give us a law, give us a rule, and we, at least the spiritual ones among us, we will keep it. Just let us know the expectation. We will get it done. Let's all just agree that what we really need is a look. We need a name. We need a smell, a place, a lofty, high-minded expectation. And we can call that Christianity. And we can feel good about it. Well, beloved, I'm here to tell you it's hypocrisy. And it is the path to damnation. Jesus calls sinners to die to self and to wear his righteousness, his perfection, his resurrected life by faith. And if you want less than that, you don't want Christianity. Mark will not let you have it. He will not let you settle for less. So let's go together to the word of God this morning as he continues to get us to Jesus in the text that is before us. So I'd like you to follow along as I read from the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God this morning, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder the house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit.
This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are again grateful for the opportunity that we have to come before your word this morning. We do ask, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all of the distractions that are such an undeniable part of this life, and allow our focus to be entirely you and your word and your promise and your glory. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark continues here to unpack for us the foolishness, the folly of being content with hypocrisy over the true substance of genuine faith, the foolishness of unbelief. And to further expound upon it, he gives to us here a sort of, sort of an anatomy of unbelief, if you will. He wants, beloved, you to experience the peace and the real joy of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, by true God-given faith. And so he's working here to show you what faith, in fact, is not. What faith is not. True faith does not respond to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the ways that we are going to be considering this morning. These are not faith responses. No, these are the responses of unbelief. These are responses that see enough of Jesus to know that he in fact must be dealt with, but they must deal with him apart from faith. What we have before us is, as I have said, the anatomy of unbelief. We see here truly, it is foolishness, folly. I don't say that lightly. It is irrational. It is illogical. It's foolish. Consider what's going on here. Jesus is now buried, absolutely buried into deep, active, hard work type of ministry here. And as more and more of his power is revealed to the people, the crowds continue to grow. And they get so big that they begin to sort of push in upon him. Remember before he had to escape out to the sea in a boat so that he could get back from the crowds in order to teach them. We need to see that here. This crowd is so big and it's pushing in upon Jesus and his disciples so much now that Mark tells us they are not even able to take a pause and take a little nourishment for themselves. They're not even able to eat. They're too busy to eat. And they're growing exhausted. The effects of this ministry are beginning to show upon these men and especially upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he continues to mercifully heal, to cast away demons, and to teach the message of the kingdom of God to these crowds that just are continuing to grow and to push in upon him. We have one of those places here where I feel like I'm going to be brought up on charges because I, I criticized a translation in the New King James this morning uh, in the Hebrew in, in Ruth, and I feel like I need to do it here too in, in the New Testament. They're few and far between. I, I love the King James Version, and I think it's a very worthwhile and valuable English version of the Bible, but it, the translators take a little bit more liberty than I'm comfortable with here. 
And perhaps if you have with you this morning the English Standard Version or the Christian Standard Version, perhaps even the NIV this morning, you may have noticed it already. The New King James says that as the people pushed in more and more, that Jesus was not even able to stop and eat, and it says his own people heard of it. His own people. It's pretty generic, right? His own people. It could be his followers. It could be uh, the people of the crowd. His own people heard it. Well, the word that is used here is almost always translated as family. There has traditionally been some reluctance, even in uh, studying manuscripts, uh, to accept certain manuscripts because of this. But there's been some reluctance, at the very least, to accept the translation that this word should be family because of what I consider to be a very unnecessary fear here. That it creates some sort of embarrassing situation for both Jesus and his family. I certainly don't see it that way. This is the response of anyone and everyone, including the family members of Jesus Christ. Until God in his mercy and in his providence opens their eyes to who Jesus truly is and what Jesus is actually doing in his ministry. And I also think that the mention of Jesus' family at the end of this section, which we didn't get to this morning, we'll look at it next week, but that also serves to point us to that interpretation because we find out that Jesus' mother and his brothers are there in this crowd. And they're very upset by what they see going on when they get there. Jesus is being worn out by the crowd and its ever-growing list of needs. Exhaustion is probably apparent upon his features. It's another one of those places in in sacred scripture where we see Jesus' humanity being made apparent right alongside of his deity. Do you notice that here? Jesus is healing, he's casting out demons, and he's wore out. He's exhausted, he's hungry, he's famished. He's man and he's God together in one person. And Jesus' family takes it all in and we begin to see the argument, at least at this point in their lives, of unbelief. What do they do? Mark tells us they actually went out to lay hold of him. Now, understand, they're not trying to reason with him. The Greek here is the identical word that is used in Mark 14 when the soldiers who were with Judas Iscariot Come and we're told they seized Jesus. They forcibly took him. They put him under arrest. They took him. They seized him. And so we see the first response of unbelief towards the revelation of Jesus Christ. He must be insane. He must be out of his mind. Weariness, exhaustion, hunger, and thirst have taken their toll. And now what we really need to do is we need to physically take him away from this place. We need to get him home and away from this crowd. He's crazy. He's lost it. You understand, the very people whom he came to save, more irony, really. 
They will save Jesus from those whom he came to save. Or even worse, they will save Jesus from himself. Because clearly he's out of his mind. Beloved, that's the argument of unbelief. Jesus cannot really be God. We've heard that before. He cannot really be doing all these things by the power of God. There has to be another explanation. And so he might be deranged. He might be losing his mind. We need to help him. We need to get him away. We need to restore some sanity here in Jesus' life. That must be the problem. Jesus is out of his mind and he's making God claims. The argument of unbelief. Jesus is revealed. Sinful man finds the revelation to be unacceptable, and so it searches for another explanation, another way. And though Mark does not record for us here what happened as they set out to seize Jesus in this crowd, we can safely make, I think, a couple of assumptions. First, they were unsuccessful in their attempts to remove Jesus from doing the work of his father. Later in the chapter, we'll see Jesus actually respond to this. We can assume they were unsuccessful because the narrative continues and we find that they must have been unable to get to him. I also think it's important to point out the fact that Jesus does not respond to their attempts or even to the thoughts that are driving them. And beloved, I want to tell you, I think there's tremendous hope for us in that and I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But before we do, we first need to take a look at the response of unbelief in another group. Because we're given two. The scribes. The scribes who we are told came down from Jerusalem. They come down, they take in the scene, and immediately they are confronted with the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They they see the power. It's undeniable. These crowds are are desperate to get to Jesus and sicknesses are being healed and demons are being cast out and they must somehow come to some understanding of why. And look at what they say. This is their explanation for unbelief. This is their argument of unbelief. It's there in verse 22. And the scribes who came from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Jesus responds to this one. He will show the foolishness and the irrationality of this argument. First, he deals with the very poor logic involved in the accusation itself. He says, in effect, look, what you're saying doesn't work. Right? It doesn't make any sense. How or even why would Satan cast out himself? If I were doing what I am doing by the power of Satan, why would Satan cast out his own? If a kingdom decides to set itself up against itself, it falls. It's a foolish defense against the power and the deity of Jesus Christ. But that's what unbelief must do, right? It cannot simply deny what Jesus is doing. The effects of his power are all around them. The proof is right in front of their faces. The 
People clearly see it. Jesus' family clearly sees it. The scribes, they too see it. And they must find a way to explain it. They must find a way to discredit him. And so contrary to logic, against reason, against all good sense, they argue that Satan is somehow fighting himself through the man, Jesus Christ. That he's throwing down his own kingdom. And Jesus says, no, that won't add up. It's irrational, and frankly, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous proposition. And he doesn't stop there. He continues, and he says in verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Beloved, this is easy to miss. Do you see why this is such a beautiful, critical argument? For Jesus to make. Have you ever thought about it? Do you see what Jesus is saying here. In response to this foolish accusation of unbelief. You got to ask yourself some questions. Okay. He's speaking in parables. We need to know who the players are. Who's the strong man? It's Satan. Satan is the strong man. The fallen world is his arena. It's his house, if you will. Jesus is making the case that Satan is being overcome, but he is certainly not throwing himself down. So we have to ask, how how has Jesus Christ entered the house of the strong man? Through his magnificent incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ has put on flesh and he has, in a very real sense, stormed the house of the strong man. He came and he walked among us. And clearly, here, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the King, the King of Kings, is the stronger man. Do you understand? He has bound Satan. You say, well, how did Jesus bind Satan at this point in his life? We're we're before the cross. We're before, when he he goes and he pays that, that price, his sacrificial death, we're before that. How could Jesus bind Satan here? How did Jesus... How did Jesus defeat Satan outside of his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead? Well, do you remember, beloved, where Mark took you right away in this narrative? In his attempt to get you, to get before you, the Lord Jesus Christ, where did he go? Right from his baptism, we are told in Mark that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. You think it's critical? To understanding the gospel? It absolutely is. And we need to see it. What happened in the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness? The second Adam came. And he was tempted by the devil just as the first Adam 
was. The first Adam failed. And the heel bite of Satan is still being felt by every single son and daughter of Adam since. We are fallen in Adam. Sin is all around us, even in our own lives. Sin is here in this congregation. It's here with your pastor. And Satan appears to be the strong man. He, of course, is not. Because Almighty God, in pronouncing His curse, announces that though the seed of the serpent will certainly bite the heel of man, another is coming. And that one will crush the head of the serpent and throw down even the appearance of His reign for eternity. The second Adam will accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. The second Adam will remain perfectly righteous for us. He will accomplish our redemption. Satan will be bound, thrown down, defeated. And the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory is the second Adam. Satan was bound after being gloriously defeated in the wilderness. And Jesus is now doing what he came to do as the stronger man. And this is glorious. What is Jesus doing as the the stronger man? He's plundering Satan's house. Do you know what that means? He's setting the captives free. You and I, we are the captives. Having kicked in the door of the strong man, having bound him head to toe, Jesus is now wreaking havoc upon his helpless shadow kingdom. He's freeing the slaves. He's throwing down sickness and sin and death. And beloved, it is the greatest news that you or I have ever heard. Do you understand? Maybe you're asking yourself, Steve, why is this so important? Maybe you think I'm just up here being Steve, having a bit of a a flair for the dramatic this morning. Why does this matter? How does it affect your life in the here and now? First and foremost, beloved, this is the gospel. This is the Jesus that Mark is desperate to get in front of you. This is the truth that will set you free. It goes without saying that the effect of what Jesus is describing impacts your life like nothing else does. But is that it? Let me ask you something this morning. Show of hands, how many of you have struggled this past week? Come on, every single hand should go up, right? We've all struggled. How many of you have struggled today? How many of you struggled this morning in the house of God? If you answer any of those in the affirmative, if you're discouraged, if you're afraid, if you're in fear this morning, if you feel that 
Sometimes it feels as if you take two steps forward only to take three steps back. Jesus Christ, the stronger man, the second Adam, he only moved forward triumphantly for you. Do you understand? There are no steps back for the one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He came, he was baptized, he defeated Satan in the wilderness, and he made his way steadfastly to the cross where he put an end to sin and death and fear and worry forever, for eternity. It's finished. And though unbelief and hypocrisy hate the truth, it changes nothing. Because the truth will indeed set you free. Satan would love nothing more than to keep you content with anything other than Jesus. He would love nothing more for you than to explain Jesus away in your doubts like his family did. To justify all of the petty little things that keep us away from him. Jesus will... We, we still have hope for Jesus' family. I mentioned that already, and I want to reiterate, there's still hope for them, right? They could still come. Jesus says later on that those who follow him, they are his family. Those who have been called, they come. Those who have had their eyes open to their own desperate need for Jesus, those who have seen and witnessed their brokenness and their need, they come. Those who have come to an end of their own strength, their own self-reliance, come. Who does not come? That brings us to the unpardonable sin. And I want to close this morning encouraging you to see it for what it really is. Who will not come? The content hypocrites will not come. Those who are content with a form of religion with none of this gospel power. Those who are content to make Christianity about everything except the Lord Jesus Christ will not come. And please, let me be clear. I understand that this doctrine of the unpardonable sin has put more fear and more doubt and more worry into the hearts of Christians for a long time than than anything else I can even think of. I myself have wrestled with it. You have probably wrestled with it. But I feel that it's been completely unnecessary if you look for a moment at the context for what Jesus is saying here. People always ignore verse 28 in their consideration of the unpardonable sin, and it's silly, right? We don't have the liberty to ignore verse 28. So what does verse 28 say? Look at it. Jesus says again, after all of this about irrationality, all of this about foolishness, the nonsensical arguments of unbelief, he says, assuredly I say to you, who's the I? This is the Lord. This is God incarnate, the second Adam, the stronger man. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter." Period. Did you hear that? 
all sins. Whatever blasphemies you utter. Beloved, I need you to follow the logic on this. Let me ask you something. Which sin in your life do you think is unpardonable? Let me ask it another way. Maybe this will make it even clearer. What sin in your life is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ? What sin could his death not atone for? What is it that you could do that would undo the work of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, on your behalf? Do you hear it? It's ridiculous. The answer is, of course, nothing, no thing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. No thing, nothing. And Jesus is certainly not putting that idea forward here. Think about what that would mean. It would mean that the strong man, though defeated, though bound, though thrown down by the second Adam, the stronger man, the strong man would somehow be able to take you back. It's foolishness. Not only is that not the picture of Satan that's being put forward here, it certainly cannot be the picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus cannot fail to bring even one of his solitary sheep safely home and still be the Lord of glory. Nothing can take us from his omnipotent hands. He will neither leave us nor forsake us. We belong to him. Beloved, you have not committed this sin. Because quite frankly, it does not exist in the people of God. Do you understand? Then what is Jesus talking about? This is where we have to take stock. He's talking about those who are content to live forever in the foolishness of unbelief. Those who are surrounded by the power and the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel and who somehow remain hateful in their ignorance and the rebellion of their unbelief. Those who see him yet only want to silence him and destroy him. Those who take their stiff necks with them to the grave. Do you understand? The unpardonable sin is to reject the only means of pardon forever. Jesus was not putting it out there that there was some mystery sin that could somehow undo his redemptive work. His opposition is a defeated foe. The only thing Satan can do now is accuse and frustrate. You understand, he has no teeth. He knows that he's defeated. He's awaiting the pit when Jesus comes again. Beloved, this is the biblical Jesus. He's not standing back so that you can introduce a Christianity that is all about your personal preference and expectation and your own personal bugaboos. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no, new, no room here for the foolishness of unbelief. There's no room here for hypocrisy. There's no possible way to be content with a religion that looks good enough. 
There's no room for the hypocrite to comfort his doubts. Jesus is either a liar who only suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, or he is a madman who needs to be sedated and locked up. Or he's a monster that all of us ought to be running from. Or he is the king of kings. The Lord of glory, the second Adam, the stronger man who comes with salvation in his hands. And he sets the captives free and he plunders the house in the realm of Satan and he becomes the only source of comfort in both life and in death. Amen? And you will either bow the knee and run to the loving arms of your Savior or you will live in the ignorance and the irrationality of unbelief. You will try to find a a better way. And it will be a waste of your time. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus Christ is the only hope of a broken creation. He reigns and he exercises his power over evil. He has soundly defeated Satan and his minions. He is the king of kings, reigning in glory over all of creation. And he is more than sufficient to be your righteousness. And you ought to be comforted by that this morning. This is where you go with your sin and your doubt and your fear and your worry. You go to the truth and you get adjusted by the truth to the glory of Almighty God. This is the biblical Jesus. And he certainly does not need any improvement from the likes of us. Will you run to him as he has revealed himself to you in his word? Let's pray.